And boom, we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winter, and I'm here as always with the splendid Dr. Bear Paul Lando coming to you live and direct from the great state of Jefferson, where freedom still reigns supreme. We are here in the Smith River flowing over its banks with all the rain and actually snow we've gotten. Bear, I was coming over the pass yesterday, and it was <clears throat> beautiful white wonderland coming across the border back into karma, well, bad karma forma, <laughs> Cali, Cali Pharma. Um, as I'm it was splitting snow in here too. Oh, is it <clears throat> cool? I'm splitting time now. now. Uh, beautiful today. Yes. Um, it's, uh, I love this weather. Uh, winters here are magical indeed. Uh, and, uh, just can't be happier with all the rain we've gotten. Uh, it's really filled up the mountains uh, in a beautiful way. And the river is so healthy. I must say there's nothing like an undammed river to lift your spirits as you could see the nature's flows with like the Smith river here going up and down with, with the rain where I'm driving, you know, splitting time now between Southern Oregon and North and here in, uh, in uh, Del Norte and uh, the, the Rogue River is beautiful, but it never goes up and down because it's dammed, I'm realizing. And these damned river, those damned rivers just aren't mm. natural. Um, but Our river's uh, so healthy now that it took out my uh, water pump. And so I was out in the pouring rain the other day, rigging a makeshift catchment system and attaching it to our water storage tanks that usually get water from the river. So yes. uh, I'm hoping those work. I get after a podcast, I'm going to go up and see how much water I scored. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we, we used to have to deal with that a lot in Costa Rica because a lot of us had micro hydro units and our All water right. catchment was coming out of a quebrada, which is a little stream. And when the big rains come, which they always do down there, it's, <laughs> it's a free for all developing systems where you can catch water that can handle the really big pushes when they come in is a, is a challenge. Yeah, indeed. Uh, th this is going to be a good talk today because I want to talk to you a lot about just that subject. Also, a lot about water. I know you're into Victor Schauberger. Yes, and, um, you know, I think off grid here, we're pretty uh, seasoned pros at it, but I still think we're doing it very crudely because we rely on all this stuff, you know, including solar panels and everything. And all of it's unnecessary, but we're doing the best we can with uh, what's available. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. I, I can't wait to get into all this. Uh, we got Chris, Chris Topher Gardner on with us today, guys. Uh, one last thing, uh, 2.40 Central Standard Time, 12.40 Pacific Standard Time. Bear Lando is going live on the Greater Reset. He's got a wonderful half-hour presentation on the permaculture of the uh, al the alchemist permaculture. <laughs> I don't know what you want to even call it, but tying an alchemy permaculture, uh, bioterrain medicine as only he can. So please uh, go uh, join and sign up for free at the Greater reset which is going on right now uh i'll be out there uh, flying out to austin on friday to dj uh the after party on saturday so if you guys are in the austin area and want to meet up please holler at me on telegram uh at av warrior i'd love to meet up maybe catch a bite and hang out with some av peeps uh this weekend in texas uh, today, Christopher Gardner, he's a domesteader, builder, massage therapist and podcaster originally from south florida now in the great ozarks area uh, after being immersed in the study of Vedanta Advaita, I always say that. Is that right? Advaita? Uh, Advaita. Advaita. He found himself in the middle of the Costa Rican jungle studying Victor Schauberger, John Worrell Kelly, and Nikola Tesla for energy and food sovereignty. The quest for self-sufficiency brought him to learn how to build domes with super adobe and frost, frost mint. Uh, 
Ferrosmint. Um, just like a musical instrument, we need to be tuned. I had to in. look that word up, by the way, Mike, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like a musical instrument, we need to be tuned when we pick up and hold the discordant pattern. Quote, our bodies are living tuning forks that constantly ring at the same frequency as our environment. Body work is a signaling system that reminds the body and bioelectric field of its healthy harmonic. I've been trained how to manipulate the nervous system to find its highest octave of expression. Uh, having the ability to mold buildings and people with his hands has benefited his hybridizing tendencies. Uh, this year, Christopher is launching his Coral Domes company in the Ozarks of Missouri while streaming with legends from around the world on his BioCharisma podcast. The BioCharisma podcast is an exploration of resilience with entrepreneurs. Having the courage to step outside the box and forge a beneficial direction is the epicenter of these conversations. The banter is grounded in reality while having the levity of inspiration in very much the same way we do here on AlphaCast. Hey, Bear, this is a, a long time coming here with Topher. Uh, we share a lot in sensibility and in philosophy. I'm looking forward to this talk today. Oh, I am immensely. And thank you so much, Topher, for being with us. Um, yeah, you're very accomplished. And, uh, you know, part of my talk today is going to be sort of within the context. It's time for more people to get out there, roll up their sleeves and go to work and, yes, uh, you know, get uh, get away from behind the mics and, and uh, you know, reading and, and intellectualizing and actually start doing stuff. And that's what we're about here at Alpha Vedic. You know, we kind of hit the ground running uh, a couple of years ago when we started because, you know, we already had a lot of experience and and uh, working farms, uh, doing medicine, uh, working in an alchemy lab, and and you know those are real essential components. So I can't wait to hear uh, how you approach all those things and building, uh, which uh, is one of your specialties. I know is uh, so important, and uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about that too. So we, um, you know, there are a lot of topics we could go into. Maybe the the most appropriate or Logical one is just to, uh, you know, have you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got into all this. Uh, I got into everything that I'm into now by accident. <laughs> I uh, was a that's the uh, best way. A, I was a pretty accomplished high school athlete. I got a full scholarship to Michigan State to to kick for them for four years, and when I was in that mode of being an athlete at that level, um, my body got into, into disrepair. I, I, I was concussed a lot. <laughs> I, uh, Football got beat, does that to you. Yeah. Yeah. I got beaten up pretty good. And, uh, I was in a lot of pain by my senior year and I was being told by all these convention allopathic doctors that I couldn't do what I was doing. And uh, they were giving me tons of different uh, anti-inflammatories. I was like on five milligrams of prednisone for like three and a half years. <laughs> I had all these leaky gut syndromes from the anti-inflammatory agents I was taking. And I was just, I was just in pain. So I had a very low energy. And uh, I had a girlfriend at the time that said, hey, let's take yoga as an elective. And I took within i took yoga as an elective my final semester my senior year at michigan state and this was like 1998 so it was kind of ahead of the curve at least in michigan and uh within three or four weeks i had no more back pain 
and I could I could bend in all these directions that really helped my kicking. And um, I was just I watched the levity of my mood. I, I, at the time, my consciousness wasn't didn't really connect how I felt physically with how my consciousness was perceiving the world. And so after starting to feel good, I became unrelative to football. <laughs> I, I became like it kind of cracked the callous, the callousness that I had over my consciousness. And I found myself not liking being yelled at, <laughs> not like not liking how fans treated me only as like my last performance, like all these things that um, that I was kind of oblivious because I was I was being shaped really by my my desire to succeed. It made me it made me impervious to my surroundings. And then within a couple a couple of weeks of doing yoga, I found myself being ultra sensitive and just just being hyper aware. And then um, I went to an NFL football camp and my 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 roommate was into transcendental meditation. And he's like, Hey, have you ever tried med meditating before? And I was like, No, what's that? And he took me through about 10 minutes of like a, a guided meditation. And then I think I had what people call a Satori, like the top of my head blew open and I was just gone. I was traveling. And when I came back into my body, I was like, Whoa, what, what, what is this world? What is, what are we doing here? Like, what's the whole thing? And I, I had been exposed to a lot of different, um, I guess you could say supernatural experiences before that point without knowing what they were. Like I didn't really have a context for for what it was that I was experiencing. So once my college career ended, I ended up playing in the Arena Football League for a few years and, you know, tried out for a few NFL teams and it like my heart wasn't in it. And in that at so that what level, position did you play? I was a field goal kicker. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I boy, I'd, I'd hate to be that guy when the game's <laughs> on the line. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it is a shit test. You can definitely say that. So, um, yeah, I just I just really started getting into meditation. That same girlfriend that said we should take yoga. She she was she was a few years older than I was, and she was into um, kinesiology. She was actually a kinesiologist, and I was always massaging her. And she's like, "You're better than anyone we have in our office. You should you should go ahead and." become a massage therapist. And I was like, great, that sounds good. I've always, you know, massage was in my family and I always watched how my, my mother was an RN. And so she would come home from a long shift and my dad would massage her neck. And I always like within our family, it was always obvious, like how, how loving touch went very, very far. And so um, in very short order in my early twenties, I was, I was teaching about 12, 12 yoga classes a week and I was a massage therapist and it was like the high life of you know living in South Florida I rode my bike to all my classes I lived on the ocean had no AC just was breathing the fresh ionized air off from the trade winds of the Atlantic and uh 
I just really dove into a spiritual practice that was pretty much the exact opposite of my exposure in pro athletics, like going from that, like dog eat dog world, total externalization. I, I, in, I internalized everything from that point. And, uh, I started reading a bunch of the sages, uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, like all these, these mystics and sages. And I just fell in love with the whole notion of Vedanta Advaita, which is the path of non-duality. And so it, within a few years, I found myself going to this one ashram a bunch and uh, I moved into it <laughs> and devoted my life to that path. And before long, we figured out that we couldn't really have that center in South Florida. So we moved it to, we were going to move it to Costa Rica. And uh, this was right around my Saturn return. I was about 29 years old when that happened. And as Saturn returns want to do, <laughs> the ashram crashed. And I found myself in the middle of the jungle with you know, no real life skills. Like I could, you know, bend in any direction. I could kick a ball pretty straight, but, uh, and I could massage people, but, you know, trying to survive <laughs> was not the best thing. And uh, so I had the grace of being able to live on a, it was an organic farm where they were practicing a lot of biodynamic techniques. And before I moved on to the farm, the owner of the farm had gifted me a book from Callum Coates, the, the book Living Energies. And so I started reading about this, this Austrian naturalist, Victor Schauberger, and it just blew my mind. Like I, wherever I was, I was carrying this book, like all the, yeah. all the deep philosophical things I'd learned from the East. Now I was like, I was reading this naturalist from a very Western mindset and it like all those spiritual principles blended. It was all this like perfect coalescence of spirit and matter. And I felt at home, like, even though I really loved all the Eastern thought, it wasn't all that practical. And when I lived in India, it wasn't a practical way of being like, I'm a very active man. Like I'm always building, inventing, doing things in my spiritual practice. There was a lot of sitting <laughs> and my mind doesn't rest. When I sit, my mind actually rests when I'm active, when I'm actually engaged, when my body is being used, when I have locomotion. So I got super stoked to find Schauberger and his contempor contemporaries, John Worrell, Keeley, um, these two gentlemen, the, the way they saw the world just blew my mind because they were dealing with harmonics and pneumatics. And, um, and then also I was on a spiritual level, I was being introduced to a lot of Rudolf Steiner. And then Steiner's principles helped help bridge the Western world and the Eastern world, which I really needed because I had this, I had this very polaric way of of experiencing the world. And Steiner was like that beautiful center point that helped me understand the non-dualistic way of of the Vedanta Advaita, along with more of like the Christian mysticism of of the Western mind. And so 
I just started, you know, experimenting and being exposed to these great biodynamic folk. And uh, I had very little money. You know, I was land rich, cash poor. So I was looking into building styles that uh, could actually suit suit what I could do. And I found super Adobe. In my entire life, I'd been really uh, jazzed about uh, domes because where I grew up in South Florida, we had lots of hurricanes and my dad was a builder. So um, we would always talk about how resilient a dome structure was. And uh, it was kind of cool within my second year of living in Costa Rica, we had a really bad earthquake season. We had a really bad like inundated ra rainy season. And then uh, we had an earthquake season where we had like seven earthquakes in a row and one really big one. So I watched all these really well-built homes kind of slide down the mountain <laughs> and I saw, and they were all post and beam structures. And so uh, my, my partner and I at the time were like, we don't have that much money. We can't build something that if there's an earthquake, it's gonna go bye-bye. Like we can't do that. And down there, there was no such thing as homeowners insurance or anything like that. Like if, if something goes wrong with your home, it's coming out of your pocket. So, um, I, I researched super Adobe and I started drawing all these, these, uh, beautiful dome ideas. And then one of my massage clients saw one of my drawings and he's like, that's exactly what I want as a home. And I was like, great, send me to school to learn how to build it. <laughs> it. I go, if you do that, then I'll build it for you. And so he did. He sent me to Cal Earth Institute in uh, Hesperia, California. And I went there and I took their extended, uh, their extended course on Super Adobe. And uh, I went ahead and built the building that I drew for him. And uh, it, I, I could send you guys a picture of it at some point, but it was mike it was could you um sorry um uh tofer mike could you uh maybe from um tofer's website maybe put up a couple pictures uh sometime during this because they're beautiful structures yeah for sure hey tofer if you want to throw me that in the chat um i'll find it where, where's the chat i don't know where the chat is oh uh oh I'm i hit so chat okay. yeah just hit in our chat yeah all right yeah, hey, awesome. you know, I don't want to interrupt your flow, but what you're talking about with your exposure to Steiner and 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 Schauberger and you know they're they're great minds, of course, from more of a Western mindset. And uh, you know, in the old Rosicrucian teachings, uh, they taught long ago that this time would come where the East and West would meet. And of course, the Eastern mysticism uh, you know, brings wonderful attributes, but it also brings a little bit of passivity and then you have the West, which were over manifestors and, you know, to a fault. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, have the ability to manifest. So, yeah, uh, those guys, uh, which were some of my early mentors, too, they really did a lot for me because I went right from standard medicine into uh, alternative. And, you know, Steiner and those folks really helped me wrap my mind around concepts uh, that I was still struggling with because I was trying to understand from the perspective of other cultures, which wasn't the way I grew up. So uh, yeah. wonderful. You know, uh, in, in the um, a guy got a hold of me a few years back. He was a linebacker for the Chicago Bears. And um, he is now a yoga instructor. Looks totally different like we all do after we quit football, right? There are most right. of us. 
And uh, he got a hold of me because he heard of my background in sports and then also with what I was doing, you know, in present time. And he wanted to team up with me to start a yoga program for ex-NFL players uh, that, you know, a lot of them uh, have a lot of bad habits. We'll say, you know, when they quit, uh, go through their money, uh, you know, really never take care of their bodies. And then also, as you know, if you're a a uh, blue chipper out of high school and you get recruited and you play and, you know, you kind of get used to being the center of attention and getting special treatment on campus and everything. And, uh, you know, then especially when you go on to the next level, when you quit, you know, you have no identity, no clue as far as who you are. And uh, so the whole concept was trying to not only help these guys uh, heal their bodies, which is what I did with, uh, you know, a lot of the same things that you explored, um, but you also help them just reintegrate into the world beyond football, because football is, uh, you know, you talk about early supernatural experiences. I always um, considered my football experience as supernatural. I mean, it is so bizarre when you think about, you know, what we used to do. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, go ahead. Well, uh, we're I, talking I, about I, building structures. Well, I will say this, Barrett, it is interesting that your children, the way you raised them, they didn't really play team sports. They surfed and did martial arts. And um, I made certain of that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how my children are. I got them starting Taekwondo. I didn't even tell you, Barry. I got found a great dojo where we're up uh, at. And they're into surfing and snowboarding. And and actually, one son's into tennis. But not a lot of team sports that, played early. But yeah, it's uh, and that's yeah, kind of what I'm gonna do. I didn't want a chance that my kids were gonna be subjected to some Neanderthal coach calling them a pussy, play with pain, suck it up. Are you hurt or are you injured? And you know all the stuff that we used to hear a thousand times. And I, I actually had some good coaches that weren't, um, you know, total knuckle draggers. So I have to say, in fact, I got into. Uh, yoga first because my head football coach in college, he used to be the um, offensive coordinator uh, for Hank Stram in the old NFL, you know, Kansas City mm -hmm. Chiefs, and then he moved on to college and we played, you know, a nationally ranked team. But anyway, um, he did some research and found that uh, football players actually have less injuries when they're flexible. Yes. So he uh, researched and got all these uh uh, you know, yoga kind of contacts. And that was part of our off-season conditioning as we had to start performing, not just, uh, you know, uh, be fast and strong, but also to be flexible. And that actually carried over for the rest of my life. So I'm thankful for that for my football coach. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I, I was a kicker. So I was always an odd duck, you know, kickers are, are made fun of for good reason. <laughs> so I, I knew from, I even got into kicking by accident. I was a really good soccer player. And I, I, when I was coming of age, um, you know, I was trying to figure out what's the, what was the best way I could be close to all the girls I thought were pretty. So I was like, Oh, I'll become a cheerleader. <laughs> So I went out for cheerleading because I was like, hey, I get to like it, it's sanctioned touching of all the prettiest girls. So I was like, woohoo. And I remember my soccer coach was walking by and he was flabbergasted the fact that I was, you know, doing cheerleading. And he's like, he's like, Gardner, come over here. And I ran over there. I was like, what's going on, coach? And he's like, 
what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a cheerleader. I get to like, you know, toss and throw and do all this stuff. And he's like, no, 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 you're coming out and you're going to be the kicker on the football team. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to, I want to be with the girls. Like I want to, like, I want to, you know, touch you. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're coming out to play football. He goes, trust me, you'll get more girls doing this on the long run. <laughs> and that's all he had to say. It was like, oh, that's my incentive. All right. And so I remember and that's how after it all my, started. Yeah. I was like, after my first really good game as, as a, as a kicker in middle school, I remember after this high school girl came up and she started walking next to me after the game and she was gripping my bicep and she was like, you know, she was just giving me the positive attention I wanted. And I was like, I was hooked. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be a kicker. But I, I was, I was a decently sized player in high school. So my coaches always wanted me to play other positions, but I was playing at such a high level in high school that the guys that we were playing, like I played with like eight division one football players on my high school team. So I was like, no, 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 no. These guys are men. I'm, I'm just a kicker. <laughs> I don't like getting hit by these guys. And so when I actually went to college, the only reason why I was getting concussed was I was getting hit by guys that ended up being pros on like kickoff, you know, or in like, right just these wild things. And then I got some off field injuries from car accidents, but I was very, it's odd when you're a kicker because you're part of the team and you're an integral part of the success or failure of the team. But then again, you're also not really part of the team. And that's I was just going to say that it's, you're stop. like, you're on a team sport, but it's almost like you're golfing or something because precisely that strike of the ball. I tried to, I was going to be a kicker for a little bit too, because I was a soccer guy, but I, 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 that's like, you go into the zone and it's just all about striking that ball. And it's like, it is that Eastern mystical experience, right. Of getting out of thought and, and just, and being one with the ball and not, mm -hmm. and, and you're not really, I guess, except for, like you said, blocking on kickoffs and stuff. Uh, you're kind of in your own thing. You're in your own element as a kicker. It was Kickers wonderful. Used to actually like my... piss me off a little bit because uh, when I was doing nutcracker drills during two days, they'd be over there in their shorts down the other end of the quad, you know, doing kicking drills and things. <laughs> but uh, when you need a kicker and a pinch, you know, that's uh, the most important guy on the team. And I wouldn't yeah. want that kind of stress. Yeah, it, it, it is a little stressful. And I find myself, I still have PTSD. I have that athlete's PTSD. Like, I think a lot of athletes get depressed because they don't, after their athletic quote unquote career is done, they don't, they don't experience the zone. And the, the cool thing with kicking is like, you go into a highly stressful situation and you're like an assassin. You know, you want to, you, you don't, you don't want to be seen or heard. Like my favorite thing ever in my career was go, being in a, in a different uh, opponent's stadium and having them go silent when I would make the kick, you know, cause you hear all the derision before the kick and then boom, you make the kick and it's silent. That was my favorite thing. <laughs> and so it taught me a lot. It allowed me to go deep in meditation because that one pointed focus that capacity to hyper focus, which I think a lot of high performers have, is where you can you can drop into hyper focus and block the world out. I think that that has been a, a wonderful benefit to my life overall. The one thing, this is my last football comment because I want to get into building in Costa Rica. 
Uh, Michael, tell you, don't bring up football because then that'll dominate the conversation. Um, I'm not a football fan, but you know, you relive your glory days if you played. Um, what impressed me is when you run out in the middle of the field and there's a hundred thousand or more people, like when we played University of Texas, there's 110,000 people there. Uh, I always thought, what if all these people were gathered for a peace event and everybody was meditatively focused on something like world peace or any other kind of worthwhile issue, you know, isn't it amazing that you can't get enough of humanity together for something like that, but you can get them together for a football game. But when I used to go through the tunnel and then run out in the field, you know, in those big stadiums, uh, I was, it's just amazing the energy of that many people all focused mm. at the same time. And it's just yeah. like, there's a lot of power there. That's, uh, that's the one thing I remember. Yeah, there's a ton of power. We played in, you know, we played at Penn State. We played Ohio State, Michigan. I mean, our home stadium was 78,000. It was sold out all the time. Yeah. So yeah. it was just like playing. And then especially you could even feel it like when it was a nationally televised game, there was a lot more juice. Like you could feel the, the electricity in the air. And then uh, we played the national, we played the Cornhuskers when they were national champions a few times. And the inner there that was even a higher octave of electricity in the air. It was it was a it was a lot of fun, but I I find like as as the ability to focus in those situations, I found it easier to focus with the more energy that was in the air than like when mm -hmm. it was, when it was sort of like a BS game, like a game where you know it didn't really matter. So. I don't know. That's a weird thing. I, I, I think that's just my own personality type. I can get kind of complacent in, in normal situations, but in the higher stress situations, I found that it was a little bit easier to, to focus. You know, in, uh, when I was in emergency medicine, it was a very similar thing. We'd have uh, situations where you have uh, a lot of people all hurt at the same time and and you'd have to do triage and decide which of these four people, you know, you're going to work on and then the rest are, but anyway, you're in a, an intense situation and uh, that's when you just get really calm and, right. and, you know, cause you've got a job to do and you aren't seeing the blood, you aren't, you know, uh, you know, distracted by a family member that's freaking out. And yeah, so it, it's definitely uh that kind of situation can really bring out the best in people. Definitely. Definitely. Or not. It's, it, it's <laughs> fun. The zone is fun. It's become ever since, ever since then I become fascinated with what mm -hmm. the zone actually is. I have this theory that when we're quote unquote in the zone, that we're actually just this hyper conduit for God to act through us. Like we're not doing it. And the paradox of being in the zone is you have these perfect moments where your body performs the task that it's supposed to perform. And then in retrospect, your ego kicks in and wants to take credit for it. <laughs> but it was just the, the body and the mind were acting in perfect harmony and they were doing what they were supposed to do. 
and then that moment is gone and then the recording device of the mind comes in and goes it wants to like you know either take credit or it wants to dissect the situation but uh i've i've always been fascinated with those moments of being able to to like perform at an extremely high level and then almost inevitably it was always when my ego wasn't there so that's what made vedanta advaita so appealing to me right after my college career was because it was like how do you access this egoless state the state of spontaneous genius without willpower and so that that's all to this day that's a question that i'm still diving into like what actually engages that for me in regular life well you can't be in your head and i think the intensity that you're speaking of um really forces you to get out of your intellect and just do what you got to do you know and i would make the same case for farming or uh, doing hands-on uh, healing work, um, right. you know, when you when you really start seeing magic happen, it's because you're not thinking about a thing. And that's um, I I kind of sit back and watch a lot of the debates going on these days um, that are preoccupying everybody. You know, do germs cause disease? Who's doing what? And you know, and all the things that people like to argue about. Well, when you're actually in the practice of doing these things, you, you know, you aren't, you don't care about academic debates. Uh, you know, again, you just default back to being able to read between the lines and and putting it on automatic. Yeah, the the very last modality that I've learned is cranial. It's biodialectic cranial sacral work. And my teacher, the whole thing that that she harped on for three years was the capacity to witness something without wanting to change it. So you know this as somebody that lays hands on another person, that that chirality, the, the phenomenology of feeling density or feeling something that's out of place. Instantly, my ego in the past would want to modify it and change it and like make it make it my ideal <laughs> and the cool thing with the cranial sacral practice that i've learned is it's just bearing witness like actually being able to witness a thing and stay neutral actually induces my client's body to fix itself i can accelerate a joint or i could you know <laughs> roll out a muscle grouping or the fascia of the muscle and do all this stuff on a very, very physical, gross level. But if I have the capacity to witness what I'm witnessing and just hold neutral, it's miraculous how how the loop current between between my hands and their body then induces that body to correct itself. And right. that's some that's something that that I, I've had to cultivate for quite a long time, but I find that in it almost everything. Yeah. So can and you it, just explain a little bit what that form of uh, cranial sacral is? I, I did a lot of certifying in osteopathy and visceral and cranial, and you know it's one of my major tools, uh, and it's just because it was so important. So uh, you threw in some other terminologies with that. So how does that technique differ? 
So in this technique, you're really just holding the, the, the occiput and you're watching the long, the long wave and the short wave. Uh -huh. That's actually, I don't even know what the fluid actually is. My teacher, she said it, she said they, they, they don't really know what that is actually causing that that wave of energy to come up and down the spine but you can feel an expansion in in the occiput and then you can feel a contraction and when somebody's injured or out of alignment what you'll feel is you'll feel a discordant vibration in in the the occiput and it it's not smooth it's not this like it's not like a the way a tide will work where a tide comes in where you have a nice, nice tied in and then a, a slow tied out. So the way I was taught was actually to to witness whatever the 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 variation in the long tide and the slow tide is in that and just watch it. Instead of trying to once I once I feel something irregular or something that feels synthetic, trying to change it, trying to manipulate the the neck or the head. I would actually just hold those points and it's very odd the the way I was taught and the way I processed it was like making my hands almost invisible energetically like almost making it so that the touch the application points of my digits were was so subtle that it was almost not there at all to be able to 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 accurately feel what is happening in that body because so much of what we feel in another body is our own body in relation to that body <laughs> and that was something that it's taken me a very long time to understand is like when you're touching somebody else or touching something else it's not just the fact that you're feeling the wood that you're touching or the human that you're touching you're also feeling your your body your tension your actual energetics relative to that which you're interacting with so in the the biodialectic craniosacral work you're essentially disappearing your your digits the that which is interf interfacing with the occiput to a point where you're so subtle you can feel the more subtle aspect of what's moving through their body and isn't it remarkable that um, conventional doctors actually argue that that even exists? Uh, I remember I was at a seminar one time. Actually, it's a kinesiology seminar. But um, at that point, I was already doing very advanced uh, osteopathic work, you know, cranial work, visceral manipulation. And uh, something came up with somebody on a, a table during a workshop. And I just uh, went over there to feel what was really happening rather than somebody with muscle testing saying, you've got this cranial fault. I said, well, let me feel because you can actually feel what's going on. Mm -hmm. And this is a room of so-called some enlightened, non-conventional Cairo types, you know, another. And uh, one guy started making a woo-woo noise, you know, because I was actually feeling what was going on. But um, also in conventional medicine, they say, well, you can't feel anything in the cranium because it ossifies. And it doesn't wrong. move. And of That's course, so they base, well, they base that belief system on the fact that just like I did when I was in medical school, you know, you start cutting up cadavers and the cranium, the sutures, you know, within the different joints of the skull 
are ossified because the person's dead. And usually right. in later life, when people, you know, are losing their vitality, that solidification, that crystallization starts happening in the first place. And then when some Italian anatomist uh, got in the, in the mix, you know, and did different kinds of studies, they were the ones that verified first that, no, these joints actually move. They're supposed to move. If you didn't move, you'd be dead and, you know, uh, you know, be at the beginning of the end. So, uh, so important, I think, that doctors start uh, learning how to use the most sophisticated and advanced technology on the plant, medically speaking, which is your hands. Thank you. Yes, being, being chiral, having the capacity to actually feel through your hands. I always talk like I, I got into orgone accumulators and all this stuff. And I was like, well, wait a minute. My hands are the best orgone accumulators in the world. You know, my, exactly. the very first chiropractor that I worked with, he was a Qigong master and he would sit there and he would do this roll with his hands before the day started. And he would see 40 clients in a day. And this was the beginning of my massage, my massage career. And I, I would see three clients a day and get sick. And I'm like, how can you see 40 clients a day and not get sick? And I, we we used to laugh because he was my size but when you looked at his hands his hands looked huge but they were the size of my hands so there was obviously something energetic that was going on and he's like well i put on my surrogate hands and i'm like what do you mean surrogate hands and so he showed me this qigong technique of where you're just building the prana in in your light body and you're just you're essentially you're you're concentrating the chi around your hands so your hands are there but it's a impermeable energetic barrier and the way my body would transduce that energy it looked like his hands were magnified we used to call them penis fingers but his hands weren't all that big it was just the <laughs> the energy around his hands allowed that that image to come through so like there is something really beautiful about becoming ultra subtle because in it, from my perspective, when you're ultra subtle, there's the, the absolute brilliant tapestry that our creator has created is so evident. When I, when I fall into my mind and I get more gross and I, I get more identified with materialism, Thing, the whenever I'm in that mode, life life isn't as uh, one alive, and it's definitely not as magical. And also, I find that the creative aspect of the creator disappears the more material I get in in my in my body. Even when I'm creating material structures or building something or I'm working on somebody that's supposedly material it's it's supposedly material <laughs> I, i'm a big fan of kenneth wheeler and i i love the fact that he says everything is just concentrated it, hydrogen is concentrated light and everything is one derivation of hydrogen or another and i really have come to to live that i really think that's a true true way of describing this very visceral hologram that we live in yeah Hydrogen's that first fire element that kicks off precipitation, it, you know, uh, through the four levels of ether, and then everything follows fire. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely right. 
Hey, I found the website here. Sorry, it's Topher HQ. Um, and speaking of working with hands, uh, you're definitely doing a lot of that with your structures. And uh, if you guys like, uh, we could dive a little bit into that because I know a lot of folks in our community are really into getting off uh, grid and working the land and are really interested in this type of stuff. Um, uh, so if you guys want to transition to that a bit, that would be fantastic. Um, I can share some screens here uh, if you guys like. That'd be wonderful. Yeah, you guys would love it because with all the Schauberger inspiration, Schauberger was really big into eggs. <laughs> he loved talking about the, the dimensionality of the egg shape, how it encodes phi. And so mm -hmm. um, I, I started to build domes because I really wanted to build these egg-shaped water tanks. He, uh, he talked about how in an egg-shaped water tank, you could have this, you could have a minimum input of water in the way the flow would work in the, in the egg. You wouldn't need any type of chemical or anything like that to actually keep the water fresh and alive. So in looking at, looking at an egg shape, I was like, huh, I need to build a hemispherical dome and I need to build a lancet arch dome. And if I connect a hemispherical dome on the bottom to a lancet arch dome on the top, that gives me a perfect egg shape. And so through the years of learning the super Adobe, the, how to actually do a three-dimensional, because all, all a, a lancet arch is, is a lancet arch is if you were to have a vesica Pisces, you cut the vesica Pisces in half. In that arch form that's in that, if you're to spin it in 360 degrees, that gives you a beehive or a lancet arch. Well, that's the top of an egg, if you're to round off the top. And then the hemisphere on the bottom is just exactly that. It's a hemisphere. So you connect the two, that gives you your egg shape. So that was really the other than having a structure to live in that could handle the torrential uh, where I lived in Costa Rica, the, the mud there was like a lahar, like after, you know, months and months of raining, the ground would get so saturated and so plasticky. If you had a very, uh, if you had a very heavy structure that was on that type of medium, if it was post and beam, you'd have one side dip into the, into the earth and the other side would lift. So you get these parallelograms. Well, with domes, they slide on top of the earth. So if you have an earthquake moving the media underneath you, it doesn't matter. It's monolithic. It just moves on top. And then, um, so doing that with both the, the Lancet arch dome, the beehive dome, and a regular hemispherical dome, uh that was like the the penultimate because it was getting me to to the the resultant of me being able to build my beehive uh water tanks which i'm going to do here in costa rica or excuse me here in in the ozarks the the farm uh, i'm like on now a lot more the, about that yeah we're in the medium it took me to learn about ferro cement because we brought up that term earlier ferro cement and the construction mm -hmm. company I'm working with here, I was describing to them what ferrocement was and it's how, how they build bridges. So the ferrocement is when you have uh, the metal that's, that's the mechanical element within your concrete, the metal is equal in weight to your actual aggregate and binder. 
So in normal concrete, your metal is only one, about one twentieth the weight of your, your binder in your aggregate. And in ferrocement, it's one to one. So you can have uh, something that's very flexible and have a lot of compressive strength. And this was right up Victor Schauberger's alley because his whole thing was what drove his contemporaries crazy was he would build these forms that were so much smaller than what what his contemporaries were building. And he said, well, one, the form itself is is the strength. Because whenever you have if you have a flat surface, the second you put a curve on it, it's six times stronger than when it was flat. That's why nature always uses curves. And if you put a double curve on it, it's 13 times stronger, given the same surface area. So when you look at an egg shape, he was able to move tremendous, tremendous amounts of water, volume of water in these really thin wooden eggs. And, the, and his contemporaries kept saying, oh, that, that won't work. That won't hold water. That won't be able to do whatever. And he's like, no, one, the shape is so much stronger than these boxes you're putting things in. And, and two, the way the water is moving inside, the actual, the, the flow of the water induces the, it, it increases the carrying capacity of the vessel. And this is this whole dynamic way of looking at life. Like you were talking about, you know, looking at a dead cadaver and all the sutures are, you know, they're, they're rigidified. Well, you have to look at a living person to feel how everything is moving. And that was the beautiful thing of Schauberger is he's like, no, you don't look at this as it's a dead system because water is alive. You have to look at this as an alive system and you have to move the water in a way that it wants to move and play and then you won't have to use an excess of material and so that's kind of also what got me into ferro cement you'll see in some of my structures for some reason i can't drag any of my photos into the chat um it's not letting me i don't know if there has to be like a certain if it has to be a certain file size but i've been trying to to add photos um do you have any okay perfect yeah so this is this is like a third oh if you go up a little bit yeah if you see or down i don't know how to say it <laughs> if, yeah right there where it says biochrisma podcast you see that spiral roof that spiral is known as a reciprocal roof. That's sort of what gave my company its claim to fame. I, I took an, a very old Native American idea with the teepee. They had flattened out the teepees in the southwest of the United States. And when they flattened out the teepee, they could do a roof that had like a five degree pitch on it. But it had this beautiful spiral design and uh, I got really tired of putting square roofs over round round structures. So I was like, as soon as I saw the reciprocal roof, I was like, oh, my God, that's the answer to my questions. But how am I going to sheathe that all the material that you see the ceiling and the roof above that that's all ferro cement. So we free cast ferro cement on top of the spiral structures that we build. That's amazing. And it looks like mostly done um, in terms of support through bamboo. 
Is that correct? Which has a certain resonance that is much more attuned to natural uh, um, frequencies and harmonics versus using metal. Right. Yeah, so. you'll appreciate this. So with bamboo, and these are whole trees of teak. In in Costa Rica, teak is an anathema to the environment because teak isn't an indigenous tree there. And in all the teak forest, all the veget all the other vegetation and animals go away because the leaves hmm. are so acidic. So in the bauxite clay is so acidic to begin with. So what I was doing was I was going to where they were clearing teak plantations and I was buying all of their long, thin rounds, all their whole trees that couldn't be used for furniture making. And then I would use those for my rafters because whenever you have a round, whenever you have a round piece of lumber, it's so much stronger than if you were to actually use straight stock because all the curves keep everything it, it it just adds to a tremendous uh, like a um how should i say it surface area in this regard a circle of surface area rules the day when it comes to um downward force so if you have a round rafter like in log homes or in the homes that that i create um that given the same volume of wood in square stock is half the strength and this is back to a Schauberger principle or just a principle in nature. Nature does everything with curves because curves are always reinforcing the other aspect of, of the structure, just like an egg. The curves on the top of the egg are reinforcing the curves on the bottom of the egg. When you have a tree and you look at a tree, the reason why it's this long cylinder or you have a bamboo stalk that's hollow like a, a straw, or you have a palm tree that's hollow like a straw. All these structures that are these really long cylinders that the 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 curve of the cylinder is is giving reciprocal integrity to the other side of the structure. So you can do so much more with it than if it's just square. I mean. <laughs> The, the second I started, you know, doing all these roofs with all this round stock, one, it really reduced the price because if you try and get a 25 foot long straight rafter, good luck. <laughs> what that will cost you is just an absurd amount of money. But I could go pick up somebody's dregs. I could go to to a tree farm where they're like, you know, selling these rafters at like, you know, bottom barrel prices and make it beautiful and use it. And so a lot of my career, a lot of my construction career has just been taking one man's trash and making it my treasure, but knowing in the background, all these natural principles of curvature, like it's just so easy when you look at it, like curvature is aesthetically pleasing. Like we all like the curves in our women, like why wouldn't we like the curves in our structures? It, it's our our body knows and then when you start to get into the deeper mathematics of it and you see oh my goodness this is a fractal of phi then it all really starts to make sense to you same thing with uh farming you know you look at factory farming and you have acres of just straight rows whereas you go into more of a permaculture design and you know you've got nice and nice geometric uh, shapes and circles and 
you know, you never follow straight lines. So I'm a little unclear about the ferrocement. Uh, what's the actual materials that that's Adobe? No, the ferrocement, what we're using is we use uh, all different layers of hardware cloth. So that's like a metal mesh blanket and we overlay okay. them and tie them together. And then on the top layer, we'll use a nylon. Like it's like a, it's a, it's a nylon hardware cloth. And then what we do is we impregnate all of that in cement. So concrete oh, it's actual is cement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So cement is a binder. And so I, mm -hmm. uh, when I first started building, I was building earthen round domes. I was building with super Adobe and what, what was very evident and with how wet Costa Rica was, was that I needed to start learning how to build with a lighter medium because at the end of the day, mass rules the day. So you could build something incredibly brilliant structure if it's too heavy on the ground that's trying to support it. When you get a little bit of an earthquake or a little bit of a shake, or you get like a really crazy rainy season, that building will either sink or slide if it's on, if it's on any type of pitch. And so as I, evolved through my 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 experience i was like if i'm going to live up on the mountain i need to be able to build with a, a medium that is slightly lighter than the super adobe and something that is more water resilient and so that's what brought me to ferro cement have you worked with um aircrete yes that that's that's what i'm that's my coral domes company so going oh, cool. on top, yeah, yeah. The I wrote this whole thing with about coral domes on the website, and I've done a, a bunch of articles for people about coral domes. But I look at aircrete as man-made coral, because when you mm -hmm. when you see what coral is, coral is a calcification. It, it's some sort of cementitious material that then is impregnated with with bubbles, and. Uh, I know you guys are into water structuring and you understand the whole the whole joy of micro bubbles, mic microcavules, and how you can structure water with microcavules. Well, you can structure a structure with microcavules. <laughs> so that's that's where I'm getting into now. Um, the last 10 years I've been working with Aircrete in building rocket stoves, rocket mass heaters, thermal mass heaters, and just using them for their insulative, the, the aircrete for its insulative capacity. And now we're getting to a point where we've developed a system where we can uh, use aircrete like you would with shotcrete with the way they make pools, but we can actually shoot the aircrete onto a surface. And so like in the pictures that you're showing, you can see the star dome there all those colored ribs that's metal that would be three inch wide metal by you know a quarter inch thick and we bend that under tension and then we come over that with a layer of ferro cement then a layer of aircrete and then that gives us an insulative medium um because now i live in a cold area <laughs> i never needed that in the tropics because insulation really isn't necessary there but now that i live in an area that's much much colder i have to have the capacity to to keep my heat or keep my cool inside very cool so journey out to 
Go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, so this was, I, I've have a, I know of a couple other companies that I've met on in my travels that are doing this, that are spraying concrete onto, onto frames. Is that what you're saying? You can literally put this up in, in a day once you have the frame up? Is it a pretty quick turnaround? Yes, I, I chose to go with the Japanese Star Dome because it's, the problem with ge geodesic dome is all the joints that you have and geodesic domes, they're brilliant structures and I, I love Bucky. But the problem that you have is that you end up having all these pointy joints. And so the reason why I went with the Japanese star dome was one, I love the story behind it. The, there was a Japanese uh, mathematician that was looking at the mathematics of mandalas and he had that like Jody Foster moment in contact. He's like, what would happen if you threw this into three dimensions? And um, so he did that with, the, I forget which mandala it was, but he ended up with a perfect dome. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense because I'm dealing with a lot of bamboo and I can bend bamboo. So I ended up building for a music festival, a massive, massive dome out of a split bamboo and PVC pipe because <laughs> they had no budget. But we had a dome, a dome structure that could could field, you know, it was over 1100 square feet inside. Was that for Envision Fest? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know those guys. That's cool. Um, yeah. I, I didn't know you did PVC in that, too. Oh, wow. Okay. I remember, yeah, yeah. That, I remember that dome. Yeah. Yeah. PVC is the only thing that made it possible. Hmm. Yeah. That was a, that was a, cause it was a temporary structure. Since then we did a bunch of permanent structures for Envision. I guess the last, last time I built for Envision was in 2019 before the whole, you know, uh, shenanigans came about, but the, um, the cool thing is with the permanent structures, we use, you know, good, good stock metal. And we're essentially making these big ribs, these bows, and you take 15 of them of equal length, you lay them in a very specific mathematical configuration, geometrical configuration on the ground. And then we just pop it up. We literally like a tent, you have, we have people on every point on 10 points, you push it up. And now it's frozen, but it's under tension. And just like in bridges, whenever you freeze the, the tension of your mechanical member in something that's solid, like con like uh, cement, like concrete, it actually, the, the rigidification of the whole structure makes it that much stronger. And so like when people are doing, you know, when you lay like a, on a normal floor, they'll have this, this, um, type of, of, of rebar that looks like a grid of four by four and they'll lay that out, but it's flat. If you were just to put a little bend in that, in that where there was tension in, in the metal, the floor would be substantially stronger. And this is how bridges are built. They'll run lengths of, of depending on the bridge, they'll run lengths of these really, really strong tension cables through the concrete. They'll crank those under tension and then they'll pour the concrete. So I, I'm sure you're aware of the company, uh, the Air Creek company, they do workshops. In fact, I was going to try to get them out on the farm and have a workshop here because I need to build a sound studio and mm -hmm. I need the acoustics. I also want a dome, but they uh, go about it with the um, inflatable 
form yes. for the air yeah. creep. Uh, do they reinforce that with rebarb or something, or is there just just that form and the aircrete stays in I, that particular? I don't know. I've Do seen you know? I've seen a I've seen a bunch of companies. The company that initially turned me on the aircrete was Dome Gaia, and they build blocks. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, yeah. They, they'll do precast blocks and then they build it like an igloo. Um, mm. And then I've seen aircrete Harry. I've seen the company Aircrete with a K, and they they give all the blow they have all the blowers for the aircrete and the mix and the magnesium cement and all that uh we're just doing a, our own hybrid style i i like to frame everything in in this steel because i i i'm also into emf mitigation <laughs> so right. it's like one of the things i'm always thinking about and when i have this beautiful steel structure from the inside one, it looks it looks stunning to actually see the skeleton of the of the steel, but then it also gives me an asymmetric Faraday cage. And so I've been mixing in biochar into my concrete mixes for for about 10 years now and studying the effect of whether or not the what what type of EMF frequencies can get through a biochar impregnated aircrete. And so <clears throat> the experiments we've done up to this point is depending on the ratio of biochar that we actually use in our in our wall mix, we can we can completely stop a, a cellular signal, any type of any type of EMF that's projected at the house, we can completely stop it. So wow, my phenomenal. Can you explain for our audience what biochar is? Biochar is pyrolyzed carbon. So when you have any biomass, the biomass, anything that's been living, anything that's organic, that's been living, that's had a life cycle, it's primi primarily comprised of carbon. And so when you pyrolyze anything that's carbon, and I, I primarily pyrolyze uh, old leaves, and uh, we call it barucha which is like whenever you're cutting wood, you end up with all these wood chips. So when you get that biomass dry, you can cook it in a vessel where the vessel doesn't allow any oxygen into it. And above about 850 degrees Fahrenheit, when you're cooking in the, the biomass in that vessel, all the volatiles that are in the, in the biomass they start to exit and they'll positively pressurize that vessel, meaning nothing can enter that vessel. You just have gases escaping <laughs> and you have this sweet spot with biochar is when you're actually positively pressurizing that vessel with heat and you get above 850 degrees as the volatiles are leaving, the carbon itself crystallizes. And when it, crystallizes it's called carbon fixing it after that cycle after that chemical process it will not deteriorate so the reason that's different than like normal charcoal or like the the carbon that you'll see in your in your wood-fired stove or anything like that is that the entire time that's burning that oxygen is coming in and adding oxidative stress and it's actually changing the polarity of the carbon the cool thing about biochar is I always get it mixed up. It's either positively, it's either, 
which one is it? Because it invites the negatively charged. It positively ionizes the carbon. And so there's this really interesting relationship when you add that as a binder and concrete. Well, it's not a binder. It actually helps bind, but it's not technically a binder. When you add these little shards of carbon, they're like these, like the, we were talking about the buckyball earlier. You have these like C60, you know, graphene looking things on a microscopic level where when you have anything that's trying to transverse or go past it, it reflects it. And it has the highest diamagnetic charge in nature. There is nothing of a higher diamagnetic charge than pyrolyzed carbon. So I'm studying diamagnetism and paramagnetism. I'm still trying to get my head around the whole, the whole alchemical way of looking at diamagnetic materials and paramagnetic materials. But the way I feel it in my body when I massage in areas that are highly paramagnetic or highly diamagnetic is in a diamagnetic thing actually has a a vertical polarity meaning the energy will go up and down where something that's paramagnetic technically it's going in every direction but i actually feel it as a more horizontal shift so i think what happens with with biochar and there's tons of studies out there with it when you add it to concrete it allows the calcification process to really amp it amplifies the calcification process, the hardening process in concrete. But the reason why it acts as such a wonderful EMF protector is imagine you have a square wave trying to traverse something that is immediately polarizing it up and down. Like it, it can't get past that. It reflects it straight up or straight down. And so they have uh, biochar paints that are, you know, just like millimeters thick that will completely block an EMF frequency from getting through it. You don't need much. And with whenever we're doing a medium of ferrocement or aircrete with it, we're not, we're not any thicker than two and a half inches. We never go thicker than that. And nothing can get through it. That's uh, I, I'm a huge fan of biochar for farming as well. And mm -hmm. with the idea of in, uh, inducing or in, in introducing that into the, into the soil to help protect it against um, all the EMF and dirty electricity and spraying and all that too. Um, with, is there some sense to that? The idea that's protecting the micronutrients uh, and the little critters in the soil. I'm a huge fan of electroculture. I didn't even know that's mm -hmm. what it was called. Yeah. Uh, an alchemist friend of mine about a year and a half ago introduced me to that term electroculture. I was reading a bunch of books back in the day when I was on on these organic farms about paramagnetism and diamagnetism. And I really just got into biochar because I was so unhappy with flipping compost. <laughs> <laughs> especially in the tropics, like flipping compost was such a lost leader from a time perspective. It took so, so long for things to break down and for the, the thermophilic decomposition to fully happen. And then you're, you end up with so little material to actually use in your garden that um, the top biodynamic guy in my area, he turned me on to biochar. And he turned me on to Terra Preta, 
And so I was like, the second I read about the Terra Preta and the Amazon rainforest, I was like, I was hooked. Because in the tropics in, in, in Costa Rica, the, the earth is all bauxite. It really carries next to no nutri nu nutrients in the ground. All the nutrients, like it, that area is meant to be a canopy rainforest. And in a canopy rainforest, the, the trees absorb their nutrition through the air. It's not, it's not carbon in the ground. So us dumb gringos that we go down there and try and create these like, you know, Northern European farms is just stupid. But, uh, you know, actually using biochar helped us game the system. And the, where, the, where the rubber really met the road for me in that regard was um, I noticed all my, all my beds where I had my plants with lots of biochar the one they they produced more food but two the leaf cutter ants never came to them and the leaf cutter ants are a real problem there because you could be growing everything organically but because that that plant's not supposed to be there the leaf cutters come and take it they're like instant karma <laughs> so if you're doing anything wrong the leaf cutters come in and they'll just butcher butcher your trees or butcher whatever you have planted and i just noticed i was like because I, I lost an entire cacao plantation, uh, like I planted all the I had, I'd gone to the to the um, I'd spent a lot of money trying to find very resilient cacao trees, chocolate trees in in that area of the world, because they're not necessarily endemic to Costa Rica. They're from Brazil. And I spent a lot of money. I did all this time to cultivate the south face sloping land of my property and i was like i was all proud of it i left for two weeks to go back to to the states when i came back all my trees were totally eaten to the nub by leaf cutter ants. <laughs> That's and so i i was heartbroken i was just like oh mm. i have i have to find a better way and the biochar just showed me like there's something about the how mycelium reacts with a with a positively ionized carbon, it's different. It, it just does something different. I think there's a better communication. And then one of my shamanic friends had told me, he was shown like one of the ways that you actually ground the etheric energy that from above is through pyrolyzed carbon. He was given mm. this whole system where you like essentially make your property like the four pillars, you go to the corners, and you create these, you put these uh, biochar cylinders in the ground, and then you put one dead center of your property, and it's like doing a biodynamic prep. You take crushed quartz, crushed crystal, whatever, whatever holds your intention, you crush it and you put it within that, that carbon, and then you cap it like a sandwich with even more of the pyrolyzed carbon. And this creates a bubble around your property. And we started to do that and it we with magnificent results like uh, the farm that was right next to me was 180 acres and my mine was three acres his his farm had had the leaf cutter ants everywhere and they were like right on the ridge of my property and it makes no sense it's like the whole biodynamic thing but because i had that little preparation on my farm the bio the 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 leaf cutter ants didn't come onto my property anymore 
So there, there's some magic in there that I don't fully understand about the diamagnetic aspect of it, but it's, it's, it's a magical material to work with. And there has to be something with it with blocking the EMF that the plants really like. Because another thing I found out was in Costa Rica, the way the electrical grid system works there, I don't know how to, I don't know the terminology when it comes to big electrical wires, but the, the way they send their ground back to, to base, <laughs> they send it through the ground. Well, think about all those frequencies now that are touching our plant's roots. And there's something about having this, this diamagnetic bubble around the root ball that the plants just love. That would make sense. And yeah, grounding away the, the, the carbon density from the uh, vertical uh, waveforms and the, well, the, the high Hertz range, right. That's heating up the, mm -hmm. the soil there. Uh, there's so much damage being done with that concept of grounding that dirty electricity through the soil. Mm -hmm. That's, and especially that's a clay soil. That's, that's really interesting. Uh, wow. That's really cool what you're doing with biochar. I'd love to create a biochar. Uh, I'd like to have a biochar furnace on my property. I assume you've built one yourself uh, or multiple I have, different versions. I have a design that everybody wants me to sell. It's a, I call it my <laughs> rocket retort. I, on, uh, on Instagram, I have tons and tons of videos of my rocket retort. Super simple device, how to make it. I am a huge fan of rocket stoves because mm -hmm. once again, they're super efficient and uh, they're and super simple too. Yeah. So the vertical part, the part that they call the thermal riser, instead of filling it with some sort of insulative medium, I fill it with biomass. And then I port the in, inner, inner area so that when that positively pressurizes, it dumps all the gases inside to the thermal battery that ignites, that doubles my heat. And then I pyrolyze all my carbon that much quicker. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it was, a, it's a pretty cool invention. A lot of people are, are pretty stoked about it. But to me, I just made it because everything was so wet there and I needed carbon like immediately trying to do it with the different methods that you have, like the different, there's ancient methods where you build these, you dig these huge long trenches, you throw all your biomass in those trenches and then you cover them up with dirt. I just don't have the time to do all that. And I found that those are very inefficient, very smoky. I can, I can convert, so I can convert 30 gallons by volume of biomass into biochar in less than 20 minutes. Wow. Is there any commercial source for biochar for people that don't have the ability to make their own? And all, uh, the other comment I want to make is um, carbon will also fix moisture into the soil. So it's another good benefit. Like mm -hmm. here, we have a monsoon season, which we're in the middle of right now. Mm -hmm. And then it gets just hot and dry in the summer. And, you know, by the end of the summer, your, your soil is, is uh, pretty hard. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so we use, uh, you know, that's a carbon based amendment is what we use to just make sure that things don't dry out like that. So is there a commercial uh, available source of biochar? There are. I'm advertised all the time on Instagram with different people selling biochar. Uh -huh. Great. Yeah. In fact, I, I really thought people would want my retort, but in Costa Rica, before I left, the majority of people just wanted me to make biochar for them. I had, I had one client, he's, he's, he's started the world's largest durian farm and 
he wanted 30 how many tons did he want he wanted 30 tons of biochar a month he wanted over 400 tons of biochar a year and i'm like my, my little my little rocket retort can't do that you got to find a different source <laughs> but he's he's like I thought I was head over heels with biochar. This guy is like, he has the money and the time. He's like really doing biochar like you wouldn't believe. And he's having wonderful results. Like his farm in very short order, he's, he's, he's going he's gonna to shock the world with the different fruits and the different hybrids he's making. With making biochar, you get a heavy uh, energy output too. Is like as it's gasifying, you could convert that to electricity, I assume. So, so that's that's the fun of it. So, at one point in my my old house in Costa Rica, I had my my rocket retort gasifier that I would have the heat that would come up. That was actually my stove in my in my kitchen. And then I made it a thermal mass heater then where the exhaust would go under an old clawfoot tub and keep my clawfoot tub. But then I also had a copper coil within the, I call it my heat guide. And that heated the water that would dump into my bathtub. That's beautiful. I, I have videos of that on Instagram too. That was like, a, I wanted to be like, you know, the whole thing that they say stack functions, like yep. stacking functions. That was like my ideal was like one of the best movies of my childhood was Swiss Family Robinson. Love that. And movie. like, you know, where they could live off grid and they were up in the tree houses and stuff like that. And like, I always love that idea. And I'm always trying to find a way to hold heat, like in the thermal mass heaters and stuff like that. Cause heat, it's like the, the principle of when you have water on your property, you want it to do as much work as possible. You want to keep it on your property as long as you can and you want it to do as much work as possible it's the same thing with heat and and when you look at it heat and water it's all fluid dynamics it's all how you route it how it moves and plays and everything like that and everything it touches it can give to it so th that's a lot of the way i look at heat i'm i'm right there with you yeah, that's like the Earthship concept using thermal mass and passive mm -hmm. systems, right? By stackings to get that sort of um, medium comfort level at all times by using the thermal mass of the soil and all that. Um, that's interesting, Bear. That's an idea for the outdoor uh, bath and shower system you guys are Mark Guyver's creating on the property yeah, right now. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and also uh, he will be building us a treehouse uh, on the gazebo platform on the way down the, uh, off the cliff on one of our river paths. Um, you know, we have a neighbor that's right across the river from our beach, Mike, and um, he has a lot of acres over on the other side there on the mountain, and he's a big biochar guy. In fact, he makes a lot of money doing it, and he's subsidized by the government to uh, do this whole biochar thing. And then he turns around on the back and makes, you know, bank on that end too. Well, but, I'm, I'm, um, I need to get to, go ahead. I, I'm, uh, when you're making biochar, you're also making biogas. And so mm -hmm. for off, for off gridders, like if you really want to be energy independent, it's not in solar, it's not in micro hydro, like you guys are seeing if you were running micro hydro during this, you know, monsoon season that you have, you're going to have a lot of days where you're out of power because the water intake is a real problem. 
The beautiful thing is when you set up an effective biochar reactor, you have a constant source of gas. You know, and your gas could run, you do just a little natural gas conversion on your on your gasoline generator. Now you have constant, you know, fuel for your generators. Hey Bear, I, I got as uh, was given that gasifier book uh, at Greater Reset last year, which I handed off to you, which is pretty cool uh, for doing exactly this. It's a great idea for your for the farm situation off grid. I, I admit, I got yeah. to admit. Um, I, I got the two copies of that book, and I gave one to uh, our mechanic because he's really inclined and, and inventive that way. So I'm hoping that he jumps in. I, I keep prodding him. Did you read it yet? <laughs> I want him to build me one. Well, DARPA has the best resource for it. DARPA, I think it's, or no, it's the Department of Homeland Security. That's where I'll send you guys the, the booklet that I got from the Department of Homeland Security. But they have a whole section of the Department of Homeland Security is about living off grid. <laughs> it's really wild. And their gasifier, their model of how they do the gasification is the best that I've seen. And I've seen like seven or eight men on uh, YouTube create this machine. And while you're making your biochar, you could be cooking and then also storing gas for the future. Like that's the ultimate domesteader yeah. or homesteader thing. I mean, you're, you're energy independent at that point. And that, that's really my long-term goal. Like with, with, our, uh, with our farm here in the Ozarks, we have enough we have enough biomass here where I could easily do that. That's beautiful. Yeah, same thing where we're at. And as we we're saying before the show, I'm so over solar panels and all that, you know, it's been good to us because, you know, we have a good system and it um, gives us that measure of independence and allows us to live and farm where we do, but it just still seems so antiquated and wasteful. And then yeah. batteries and everything else. And plus the damaging effects of the EMFs with the solar panels and all the toxicity that comes with that. It's all touted yeah. as this great green energy and it's really not. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, um, I, I, I've done enough installing of, of EV or of, of, of PV panels. I've had to rectify thousands of batteries in my life so i'm not i don't like i have no real confidence in battery technology i've been seeing super capacitors for 16 years nobody's produced a product that really works lithium ion now they say iron ion like all these different things none of them do what they say they're going to do for any given period of time especially if you live in a humid environment I mean, Costa Rica is the biggest shit test for me in most things because everybody that would get, you know, solar there, their solar would die very quickly. And it was all because the batteries just lose, the, they lose the capacity to carry a charge. So that's also what pushed me towards biochar was to have the capacity to actually uh, run my uh, electronics with a generator out of all the things that I saw. For as much crap as a as a good old you know rank hill cycle motor you know gets they're still so reliable and you can get them anywhere you can get a gas generator anywhere and for 50 bucks you can put a little natural gas conversion on it and if you know how to make natural gas you're set so to me that's resilience 
That's pretty yeah, beautiful. You um, you know, talking about domes and sort of centrifugal or centrifugal, I always say it wrong, um, energetics of the sort of um uh you know how the toroidal works in terms of mm -hmm. the ether. Um, I'm always curious on how in the future now we could start to capture that energy. And I don't know if that would be through structure water or whatnot, but alternative forms, because we know there are, there is energy in the ether uh, or the aether, excuse me. And um, by literally through geometry that creates, you know, a, a charge. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that's the, the exciting stuff that we're getting back to that they probably had during the Tartaria days with the little uh, egg spires mm -hmm. or the egg shapes on top of, you know, like you see in the classic kind of Russian cathedral structures and stuff mm -hmm. where they were using mercury maybe or whatnot to get that centrifugal um, action to store energy. Have you considered this sort of stuff? I know it's pretty out there um, versus having to burn things, um, which is still that explosion versus, I guess I'm getting into implosion dynamics implosion. here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I've been- Which is Schauberger. Yeah, yep. Schauberger. So when you build a beehive dome with super adobe, you're essentially making a coil on top of a coil on top of a coil on top of a coil that the 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 radial pattern is going in towards a point and i was on like you know wrong number 30 on one of the domes i was building and between each layer you have two rows two lines of metal and so i had, i had built some earthen batteries before when i was a kid and i was like huh wait a minute this is an above ground coil that's insulated by earth if i was just to ground one side and then put a spire on the other side, if it's 20 feet tall, that's 2000 volts of potential. And this was like in 2008, when I had that revelation, I'm like, our buildings should be powering themselves. Exactly. That, that was like, I had that. And so when the Antiquitech stuff started to hit the, hit the scene, I, I'd gone to Tesla Tech and the, the nerds out there were giving me a bunch of information about how these old buildings with their with their chimneys the way their chimneys were they weren't designed to actually burn wood in them and then when you see a cross-sectional diagram of the chimney they would have these two plates of metal that would go all the way down into where you know the fireplace would be fireplace and in front of the fireplace you'd have these two nodes one node was connected to the front front panel of the metal the other node was connected to the back panel of metal and then they found that these were connected all the way down into a cistern that would be in the bottom mm. of the building. There's and a the lot water. of these, and a lot of these cisterns were connected through open water channels. So there's your current. Because yep. I've built I've built cloud busters where they're orgone accumulator where you can direct the energy. And what do you do? You have the back line of it within a flowing body of river. So somehow, some way, they were transducing the chi, the orgone, like all this stuff is interrelated, Wh whatever you're going to call it, the bioenergetics, they were transducing it, and then they put enough resistance into the system that I think they were doing resistive heating. Yep. It wasn't fascinating. Because there are so many of these antique fireplaces that have no carbon <laughs> you have this fireplace of the chimney uh quote unquote chimney and there's literally no one could ever do a chimney sweep in it and there's no carbon nobody ever built and burnt and if you're a fire guy 
if you're really a fire guy, you're going to build a thermal mass heater. You're not going to build a fireplace because fireplaces are so inefficient. All your heat goes out into the environment. Not to mention occasional chimney fires. Exactly. Because all the creosote explodes. <laughs> Just had one of those so last month. And whatever you do, we, uh, you do not put water down the chimney. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Please tell me you didn't try that. You crawl up on the roof with a hose. <laughs> it was not me. It was not me. We are a volunteer <laughs> fire department here in Gasky. Uh, but no, you want to dampen, you want to dampen that fire from yeah. the fireside uh, as much as you can. Um, that is so fascinating with the plates moving up. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so it was uh, conductive conducting the heat there. Um, uh, and in the water, the current, uh, I remember going to, um, you know, you look at ancient structures like uh, in Spain, going to the um, uh, all, uh, oh, what is it? It's the, the Moorish uh a uh, uh, fortress there in um, uh, blanking out where I was, but it was just water going everywhere through this uh, ancient structure. And they had it routing through every room in these little channels of water. And it was like, of course, the, the, the conventional wisdom saying that that was just how they access water. But to me, it seemed like it was like an informational uh, mm -hmm. current that they were using the um, it'll come to me in a second with this famous, fortresses uh in granada spain um mm. but uh yeah and you see that through all these through antiquity uh the use of water so we've lost a lot with what water's capacitance right really right. is it has to do with right. this sure. whole electric universe thing that's going on here in the in the dialectic plane that we live on we've used um water implosion devices for our irrigation for a good number of years now and they really really work you notice a tremendous increase in yield and uh which are growing and uh even uh, when we make nutrient teas we do it in a mm -hmm. in an implosion device you know not just a a mixer but you know it actually is based on the um configured the way schauberger understood implosion is that dan winner's device uh no no it's no. not Dan's. Dan, we will have Dan on the show next month to get into all his theories so Dan about capacity. Dan has uh, one of those devices that he's created uh, that's unique. You know, I looked at his devices like about 15 years ago before I started making my own. Um, mm -hmm. I was just wondering, I'm always like, I'm a real implosion water structuring nerd. Like I've been, you know, working on my own ways of doing it by the way I understand mm -hmm. it. And just sort of hybridizing everybody else's systems with flow forms and magnets and sometimes pressure, sometimes uh, negative pressure, which is a fun thing to talk about, especially to somebody like you who's a body worker. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of, of devices I've seen online that I haven't had direct experience with. So I always like to talk to other water nerds to see what devices they use because all of us are finding, I just think it's like when you pray over water, you make it holy water. It's just the love of the water, just the, just your own heart, your own structuring because of your love for the water and your appreciation for it does so much to it. And I think the device that you get or devices or whatever you're doing is just an external representation of your own reverence. For the holy water <laughs> only um only a catholic priest can make holy water 
please. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> that, that is definitely a joke. Uh, I'm, Alhambra a, I'm a recovering was... Catholic, as is Michael. So, by the way, speaking of Catholics, Ferdinand and Isabella took this over, but it was the Alhambra. Uh, above Granada as Spain. Mm. And um, it was really interesting to see that, how those water channels work because they were always vortexing and then going through channels into the next room. And of course, the Moors would always pray, you know, they were Muslims, so they would do their prayer and in these rooms with the water. So they were literally structuring it with their intention and then sending it through the whole palace in a constant flow. It was remarkable uh, how these structures, used. They they got this stuff. You know, yeah. um, are you familiar with Veda Austin's work and what she's been doing with freezing water, kind of taking the uh, the Miyota, the, uh, you know, Japanese. Um, uh, Masamura Emoto's work. Yeah. Yeah. Emoto's work uh, to the next level with um, by actually seeing the crystalline structure of freezing the consciousness of water. And actually, my Miles, when my oldest son's going to be hopefully doing this experiment for the county science fair and is going to win blow minds is what she's doing with albumin uh, egg whites and freezing them and getting feathers in the holograph, uh, the holographic image um, and and getting really beautiful images for the free range chickens. And in those that are caged, she's getting very harsh structures and very um, uh, very interesting visualizations that aren't can really conducive to nature. But when she puts the, this is what's really trippy, is when she puts the free range eggs next to the caged eggs, over time, the caged eggs then shift when she freezes them and they shift to the feathers and the beautiful image. So like through morphogenic resonance or something, mm -hmm. those eggs are actually affecting the other eggs just by being next to them. And that is the structured water of the albumin. Um, yeah. it's insane. Not so insane. that's, that, that's another thing that I'm getting into now is, have you guys seen Tanya Harris's work? She, she's a artist slash scientist that figured out how to measure the base resonant frequency of structures. Mm. She did it to, I think six or seven cathedrals in, in the UK. And then she applies the base resonant frequency to a cymatic frequency generator, essentially a big speaker just turned upward. And what she had found a few times was that the base resonant frequency of the, of the cathedral matched the rose window pattern of that cathedral. And so what we're going to be doing in the future here is we're going to be taking some of these domes that I've built we're going to find out the base resonant frequency of the structure of the dome. And then we're going to build, we're going to go ahead and etch that cymatic pattern into glass. That will be the, the sun portal for the top of the, of the dome. And so that is We're going to make meditation spaces like that. So when a person goes in there, it's just like having, you know, the free range egg next to the to the caged egg, a person is going to walk into a resonant structure and immediately the coherence within their biofield will start to increase. And the goal is to 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 make the spaces that we live in an ordering principle, a coherence building principle so that a person not only could be in, a, in we were talking about the, the building electrifying itself. Well, now it's like the structure actually becomes like a real home, like home is where the heart is. It's like 
the, these structures will give a person um, the, the coherence that's needed, the order that's needed for extra energy and healing. On point. Just uh, and you're not even reinventing the wheel. You're just bringing back uh, the wisdom and knowledge that you know uh, the ancients understood quite readily. That's really cool, man. I want to come out and visit your spot. Yeah, there, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. I the more I think I'm inventive, the more I recognize I've just <laughs> I've just tripped over the the geniuses of the past. That's it. And there's also a lot of living elements in uh, all of these natural materials as well that people don't consider. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of the work with people where they uh, bring these elements that are supposedly dead for thousands of years back to life. And uh, in, as far as building materials, I read this uh, one account of um, people actually using these elements to grow structures so in other words the living structures were um living right and uh built organically by the creatures that lay dormant in those materials yeah that's sort that's sort of my play with the coral domes is like i'm, I'm trying to right. kind exactly. of pull people's minds back to that because we done experiments with effective microorganisms in concrete mm -hmm. When I first started building, I saw this study out of Japan where they were pouring EM into their concrete mixes. And then they would test them after five and 10 years. And they saw that the concrete that, that they put the EM in, the concrete acted like a forged medium, not a cast medium. So what that means is when you pour a cast, when you just pour something into a mold, it's not nearly as strong as if you're moving the pour in one direction because all of the aggregate, all of the molecules turn in the direction of the flow. And all of them being coherent, like that's the way a magnet works with, with a ferrous material, all the molecules turn in one direction and that's what makes it magnetic is now there's a polarization. Well, they found with geological materials, you could do that with EM. And so we did an experiment with that. We put everything in the concrete. And then when I started studying geopolymers and went to the Geopolymer Institute, that's one of the main things. That's one of the main elements of making a good geopolymer is you add these types of elements to the mix that actually create this forge, this, this coherent molecular direction that really adds to, to the, the structured effect of the material. Amazing. So um, with our time left, are there any topics that you'd like to get into that we haven't already? And then also, guys, uh, we need you to share all your information so people can find your work. Well, you, I was going to ask you, have you guys got into the whole notion of Amorica? Explain. Uh, tell me. So... I, I'm saying it incorrectly, but I, I've been watching this this YouTube per personality for a few years. Name her name's Michelle Gibson. Oh yeah, and she's very Michelle, big. She's an Antiquitech Tartaria yeah. researcher, and she's always been talking about the Moors, the Moors, the Moors, the mm -hmm. Moors built yep. a lot of what we call America, 
in my I have a few friends that are from Utah that were telling me the Mormon tradition of like, you know, there were a few of the lost tribes that came over to this continent. And then as of late, I've been listening to a gentleman out of South Florida that runs the old old world Florida. Um, and he's brought up because I grew up in South Florida and still have family there and all that. And he was bringing up all these things and it started connecting the dots for me because I was an avid fisherman. Um, we would go out and GPS track places and there would be like pyramids under the water, like <laughs> all these things. But, you know, like it was like it wasn't the time, at least in my consciousness, for that all to be uncovered. And so I love the idea because I know how the inversion works. Like if we're told that this was the new world, we know it was actually the old world. <laughs> and so there wasn't anything that was like, you know, it wasn't like the conquistadors came over here or, you know, the, whoever you're going to say the European influence came over here and they came here and they were new to the area. There were aspects that were new here and there, but um, I'm really enjoying this deep dive into what this this area used to be because especially in the southwest of the united states um i had like a a, a spiritual experience the first time i went to the grand canyon and i was looking at the grand canyon i was 18 years old and it 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 was fake to me it was so beautiful and so grandiose that my heart completely opened and i was like wait the story that was being told to me about this, you know, river slowly carving, I was like, this is utter BS. And as I got older and I started learning about plasma and dendritic, dendritic waves and what those are and the biomimicry that you see in, in trees with the roots and everything like that, and then getting into plasma events, I really think that this was the the old world that's talked about in Greek mythology and what the the mythology around Typhon chasing the old gods to the new world was that was actually the North American continent and that in <laughs> the area that he came down and descended and like wiped away was the southwest of the United States and as he chased chased the the gods to the east i think that's all allegory for whatever occurred on this continent and all these new researchers keep bringing more and more information to the light that our forefathers especially the people that formed the 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 u.s corporate governance they were well aware of it <laughs> they hid it in their they hid it in their structures they reclaimed structures claimed it for their own in these structures you actually have in the dome ceilings the whole story revealed you know it's not it's not these you know purely christian stories that 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 people try and claim these are actually the stories of of our long long ago forbearance and so I, I don't think so they'd lie to us about things like that. <laughs> yeah, just like you know, holy water could only come from a Catholic. The, the, the Smithsonian's totally legit, man. 
Come on. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you got the wink, wink, nudge, nudge from uh, what's his uh, Spielberg from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He had that huge warehouse with all the goodies in it. You know, yeah, well, uh, there's an alternative historian um, researcher, Walter Bosley, who has an interesting idea that Napoleon actually came over here and um, started the Smithsonian and uh, interesting book about Napoleon. But um, there is a lot to be said about um, the, uh, you know, obviously all the stories of the giants, right? That on all those uh, in the late 1800s and also the, um, the airships, uh, mm -hmm. lots and lots of documented occurrences in the late 1800s of airships and even Tesla talking about it and UFO stuff. Um, and like they, they, yeah, it's funny, like America here and America, I want to look into that more. Um, there is so much, there was an orgy of evidence showing that there was a, a fundamentally much larger civilization here, not just the Native Americans. Native Americans came and sort of uh who knows there's a lot of questions too about native american culture and how mm -hmm. advanced they actually were um so much that we don't know which is really exciting about all this new the, research i have this new tradition i have this new i was just axiom. gonna stay with it go ahead <laughs> i no, i i go, go by this one axiom now if hollywood has put a ton of money into telling me a story pushing me in one direction I go the exact 180 degrees the opposite way. So the whole cowboys and Indian things, how many movies have been made about cowboys and Indians? Like I just I'm watched uh, John Ford's The Searchers with my kids uh, a couple nights ago and that sets like, I mean, Ford, he was put in really to set a lot of the motifs and themes Crow Triple Seven did a great show on uh, on mm -hmm. this back in the day. That really is what most people think of the West, right? Is this right. cowboy motifs and stuff that Hollywood literally was, you know, set. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, sorry I interrupted you. There. No, I was just gonna uh, say that you know if you get into the original Ascended Master teachings, which are uh, you know um, a continuation of the Anthroposophical and Theosophical. Uh, teachings that emanate from the Rosicrucians all the way back. Every single source has the same exact thing, which is America was the advent of humanity upon this planet approximately mm -hmm. 4 million years ago. And, uh, you know, in the first appearance of mankind on this plane, uh, we're in a very elevated state of consciousness and, mm -hmm. you know, had a little bit of a downfall there. But uh, what we're embarking on now in the last and final golden age is um, a return full circle to where it all began in the first place. And that's why America is so important. And of course, America, because of its history, carries a very, very powerful and special resonance, which is also why the creature class is bent on destroying it. Yeah. And that's very evident living abroad. You know, I've lived I lived in India and I've lived in Costa Rica and I've lived in Central Europe. And I have to say the spirit that is here in the United States, even in everybody's lower capacitance <laughs> as of, you know, the last God knows how many years, it, there's still this energetic independence that is in North America that is nowhere else that I've experienced. Yeah, agreed. And, 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 all the all the bs i believed when i was a young man 
about you know this this place being you know the dregs and the united states being the the great satan and all the rest of it all the propaganda that i believed it took me living abroad to be like uh, couldn't be further from the truth <laughs> like this place is the promised land it is i i really feel this was the old world and it's just it's just like anything in consciousness we have to we have to claim it you have to claim it and live it and not be in the in the victim attitude and if there's any place where you can be independent and you can be resilient it is this land yeah and there's like this, a there's a crystalline structure uh, underneath the continent that in, energetically it has a certain vibration. There's, um, of course, the Great Lakes, the, the Grand Canyon, Mount Shasta, the Tetons. Um, there's a lot of like the just the overall um, geographical sort of makeup of, of America is conducent to success. Uh, and, uh, it's, uh, I couldn't agree more. There's a spirit of that's most in line with natural law here. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the individual, um, is, you know, this idea of individuation here, that makes America so great. The individual is, especially with the communist commute takeover of the world is like bashed. But I, I also would say in terms of like America being like the military force and causing all this harm, that's because of that individuation here is we've been attacked. And I, I would say, especially since World War II, um, the those that have, have taken over the military industrial con complex and are obviously our entire political structure, that's because they're trying to attack that spirit. So we it is incumbent upon each and individual American here to do what you say and is to live your logos and to go out and use this freedom to create beauty uh, and to be an entrepreneur, ideally. That's what Bear and I are really dig into, and to take charge of your life. And it'll switch around like that really, it will. really will. And be sure to be sure to go out and vote so your favorite politician can <laughs> fix everything for us. <laughs> That's three times now, man. You, you're you're shocking me over here. <laughs> yeah. So oh, I'm total normie. Michael, tell yeah. you that. <laughs> yeah. Like we were saying in the beginning, I don't know if I hit the recording. That's a green screen behind Bear. He's in actually in the heart of Manhattan. Um, he works on Wall Street on his off off days. Uh, hey, this has been such a great chat, Topher. I knew um, we would have a lot to really synchronistically talk about, and uh, I could see you being a repeat guest for sure. Um, definitely want to come out and visit you one of these days. I've always wanted to go to the Ozarks, man. I've always been drawn to it. I, I want to go fish and explore the nature there. Uh, maybe even, um, I don't know, go see, oh, my friend Chance who lives out there. Would yes. love to visit him. And I know uh, on the bear, on Owen's side of things, I think they even do a festival out there. I know they did one mm -hmm. last year. Did you Did you go to the Bear Taria Festival? Yeah, I gave a I gave a speech on the power of the hands of five. Oh, five, that's cool. Five. Yeah, yeah. I live about half an hour away from those campgrounds. Oh no way! Yeah, very cool. And our uh, our friend Matt Presti lives out in the uh, hills in uh, Missouri somewhere too. So there's a, a lot of good people there. I would and love I, I would love a contact uh -huh. with Matt Presti. I've I've been a huge I can fan hook of you his. Up. Just yeah. I, We've I, uh, had a good association for a long time. I've been in the uh, Walter Russell stuff for a long time. So uh, yeah, Matt's good people doing very special things. So 
we'll definitely connect you. And of course, they're behind the scenes doing some work with old uh, Walter Russell generators and things too, that you'd probably be very interested I, in. I so need to go see that, man. Because back in the day, like when podcasting first started, I listened to him with a like on audio and really low quality stuff. And I, I got the one, you know, Walter Russell's book. And it was just like, I, it's still the only book I just have just by by my bedstand. I just like looking at the different octaves of the elements. And I'm a huge, huge fan of Walter and Lyle Russell. And he was a big part of that. That's uh, yeah, I had ice radio. Uh, I have his have chart on my wall right here. That's oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, um, you know, Derek Collum, he's doing, he's uh, working on trying to, as Bear said, um, bring back some of Walter's um, zero point energy type of devices. Uh, and it's exciting to see all of this unfolding as we all connect and kind of start connecting all the dots here. Um, I, I feel like we're very close to having uh, massive breakthroughs as these micro communities unfold that are going away from normie culture. And we're going to create our own renaissance and the normie world will go that way. And through our little communities, we'll just continue to prosper. It's uh, exciting times. It's wonderful. Absolutely. I, well, gentlemen, it's been awesome to to be able to hang with you. I've really enjoyed your your show for about a year and a half now when I first got turned on to you. So thank oh, you for awesome. having me on. Oh, thank you. And Topher, um, if you don't mind, I might uh, get a hold of you uh, and pick your brain about a couple things, if that's okay. Yeah, please do. Please do. Awesome. I, I have so you much know, to talk doing... to you about. <laughs> so, like this, well, we, we just touched the surface of things. Well, I have, uh, you know, people like you that are in, uh, you know, in, in building in ways that go, you know, over my pay grade and electrical engineers like we'll have Dan Winter and, you know, they're, you know, like a whole different um, specialty. My specialty is in chemistry. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you get in the chemistry lab, you can, all these things we're doing, you can mimic those same things to create out of thin air in a chemistry lab. If you mm -hmm. understand old alchemical principles, you can take rainwater, for instance, and, you know, make 12 different factions out of it. Each one will do different things, test different ways and, and have different uses. So, there's so much that's all coming together right now. It's really, really an exciting time. And uh, the way, the reason why I kind of stick in and do this stuff, um, I'd be, you know, just kind of out in the sticks on my own and be just fine. But I really like what Michael and I are doing. And, and I credit Michael for dragging me out of the woods and getting me into this stuff. But, you know, we get to meet very special people like yourself. And I think it really is a time for all of us to have a meeting of the minds and not just, you know, disappear and try to hide out and create your own cocoon. It's, you know, now's the time where we need to circle the wagons and change this thing. And people like you are on the front lines. So thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. I've, I've, ever since I found the capacity to communicate with people on the internet, it, it expanded my, my like family, so to speak. Because, you know, there's, I think all of us kind of, I'm not going to speak for you guys, but especially when I was in Costa Rica, I didn't have that many people around me that I could like fully, you know, dive deep in the weeds with about all of this stuff that I was into. And people just kind of went along with it just because, you know, I was just doing it. But now to be able to actually communicate and meet with people on the level of mind and heart is just like, for me, it's so rewarding. 
So I, I thank you both so much for allowing me to come on. Beautiful. And please, please guys go follow um, uh, Topher on, are you on Instagram much anymore? What's like the best place if someone really wants to connect with you? You got Topher HQ, right? Uh, yeah, we just launched Topher HQ. Uh, that's topherhq.com. That just stands for toferhsheadquarters.com. And then I'm on uh, Instagram as bio, bio charisma, which is biocharisma. <laughs> and then I have uh, the Bio Charisma podcast, which is on all the podcast players now. And um, I'll start a live stream pretty soon here whenever I get an extra moment to do it. But um, at the moment, I'm just podcasting. So there's a Telegram. Um, we have a, a Bio Charisma podcast Telegram channel that people could connect on. And that's that's pretty much it. Beautiful. I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes below. Thanks guys for joining us today. Thanks Topher again. This has been a phenomenal chat uh, as we knew it would be. You guys can access this on odysseyunite.live. Uh, it's on uh, LushTube still, uh, but uh, also will be on our website, alphavedic.com. If you're new to us, go check that out. A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C.com to support us. Go buy our products. Uh, we have make amazing teas and health products out of the mind of Bear Lando and from our farm to your family's uh, front door. So thanks so much, guys. And, um, uh, and very soon we'll have edible biochar in our lineup. Woohoo! <laughs> nice. Um, Bear is about to go live in 35 minutes on the Greater Reset. So go check them out there. Go show them some love. And uh, we love you guys and have a beautiful day. Don't forget to smash the thumbs up. Give us a like. That helps us out. Remember to get outside, get your feet dirty, go in the dirt, go plant something, go for a hike, show Mother Nature some love. She'll show it right back to you. Love you guys. See you next week. Cheers.